Well, good evening, everyone. Lovely to see you. Well done for staying the course or for coming back uh, on a Monday evening. Uh, This is the last in our little trio of studies of the English Reformation. Uh, And you'll notice we've been looking at three of the early Tudor reigns. So we were thinking about uh, William Tyndale uh, in the time of Henry VIII, uh, Thomas Cranmer under uh, Edward VI, and uh, tonight the martyrs of the Reformation uh, under Mary Tudor. Uh, During the reign of Queen Mary Tudor, uh, the fires of martyrdom blazed across England and Wales. In less than four years, between February 1555 and November 1558, nearly 300 Reformation Christians uh, were burnt to death for their faith. Uh, Others died uh, in prison, uh, while still more were forced to go into hiding or flee into exile on the European mainland. Uh, And of course, uh, the 16th century itself right across Europe, was a very barbaric age, widespread persecution uh, on all sides. But such was the ferocity of this English persecution, never seen before uh, in that nation before or since, that Queen Mary's brief occupation of the throne, she was only queen for six years, uh, has gone down in history as England's reign of terror, uh, a time when the Reformation Church was severely under pressure. Uh, No one was safe. Uh, The martyrs came from every social class and every walk of life. So some were eminent. Uh, There were uh, four bishops uh, and an archbishop, uh, 16 clergymen. Uh, First of all, they were thrown out of their homes and banned from their churches, and then they were burnt. But most of the martyrs, uh, we learn from the accounts, uh, were Christians in the pews. Uh, Many of their professions and trades are recorded. Weavers, fishermen, tailors, barbers upholsterers, brewers, carpenters, agricultural labourers. Not generally university educated or particularly well connected, uh, more often illiterate and uh, unlearned. One in five of these 300 martyrs were women. Uh, There were elderly widows in their 60s and 70s, teenage girls, uh, age of 16. Uh, Even, uh, remarkably, a a baby um, born at the stake on the island of Guernsey to a mother who'd been condemned um, and uh, uh, the the child itself was uh, put on the fire. The one prosecution in the next reign, uh, the sheriff was found guilty of murder uh, in that instance. But a terrible, uh, truly terrible 45 months, uh, but it had a profound impact upon the future direction of Christianity in the English-speaking world. Most of those martyred men and women uh, were not theologians or preachers, Uh, or Bible teachers, but it's their testimony which helped to lay the foundations for English-speaking Reformation Christianity. Last night, if you were here, we were thinking about Reformation texts, uh, documents written uh, by the great theologian uh, Thomas Cranmer. Tonight, uh, it's more about lived experience, about the testimony of these uh, untheological but uh, Bible-reading people. Uh, when, when the martyrs had their lives taken from them, it seemed for the Reformation in England like disastrous defeat, uh, but God raised up from the ashes a revived and purified uh, and uh, empowered, Bible-rooted, Jesus-glorifying church. Remember Tertullian's famous phrase, uh, that uh, early church theologian in the 4th century, semen es sanguis Christianorum. Uh, which means the, the, the blood of the Christians is the seed of the church. And we often find that in Christian history, uh, where there's a persecution 
uh, upon the church in the next generation. Uh, it grows strongly. The, the most famous account of those years, uh, I should have shown you that picture already. Uh, it's uh, from this book, uh, John Fox's book of martyrs. Uh, John Fox was a Reformation clergyman uh, from Oxford. He was a historian. Uh, he was particularly interested in learning lessons from the past to help people uh, in his own generation uh, in the contemporary church. And during the reign of Edward VI, uh, John Fox began to write an account of the sufferings of the Lollards, those Wycliffite preachers uh, and their underground congregations. And he researched the story of uh, martyrdoms in England from the first Lollard martyr, William Sawtree, in 1401. Uh, all the way up to the last martyr under Henry VIII and Askew in 1546. But when Queen Mary came to the throne, uh, John Fox fled uh, from England to the continent uh, with his manuscripts, uh, which he published in Latin uh, as Rerum in Ecclesia Gestarum. Uh, it's a very prosaic title. It basically means uh, things which have happened in the church. Uh, but it was this martyrdom account. Uh, but martyrs of a previous generation... Uh, written in Latin for his uh, ecclesiastical friends. One of the dilemmas when persecution arrived in England was whether to flee or whether to stay. Uh, some chose to face the persecution, uh, even though it meant uh, certain death. John Hooper, Bishop of Gloucester, he, he'd run before. In Henry VIII's reign, uh, he'd uh, gone off to Zurich and returned. He said, I'm not going to run uh, again, once I did flee and take to my feet, but now because I'm called to this place and vocation, I'm thoroughly persuaded to tarry, to live and die with my sheep. Uh, others went into hiding, uh, just uh, managed to keep their heads down for five or six years, remarkably. Uh, think of Matthew Parker, uh, Elizabeth's first Archbishop of Canterbury. He didn't flee, he didn't die. Somehow he just managed to uh, blend into the background. But about a thousand reformers fled to the continent. Uh, when the persecution began. All of them agreed, uh, in fact everyone agreed, uh, that no Christian is obliged to face persecution when it comes, if there is an opportunity to escape. Running away is not the same as denying the gospel. Uh, and uh, as biblical basis, they point to Jesus' own instruction. Matthew chapter 10, uh, verse 23, when they persecute you uh, in one town, flee to the next. Or they'd look at the book of Acts, where the church is persecuted in chapter 8. Remember, as, as uh, Saul is breathing threats against the churches, and they scatter, they flee. So John Fox is one of those who runs. Uh, first uh, to, uh, to Zurich, um, and uh, Frankfurt, Strasbourg, uh, Basel. Uh, the authorities are actually sent... Uh, to capture him, um, but he's just one step ahead. He's left his house before they've arrived. Um, he had his pregnant wife with him. Uh, they get on a boat at Ipswich uh, and sail down to the continent. About a thousand reformers fled. They take refuge in Geneva under John Calvin uh, and uh, in Zurich with Heinrich uh, Bullinger and other English communities uh, in Emden, uh, Basel and elsewhere. Think of Miles Coverdale. We talked of him yesterday morning. He's a great Bible translator. He's actually arrested... Uh, by the Marian authorities. And unusually, uh, she, he, he's the one person the Queen decides to let go. Uh, this is where uh, trade trumps theology. Uh, the King of Denmark 
intervened on behalf of Miles Coverdale uh, and the Queen was particularly keen to ensure trading between the Danes and the English continue. So uh, he is allowed to escape. But John Fox uh, has to run. And while he's settled in Switzerland, news begins to trickle through uh, some months later that uh, martyrdoms have started up again uh, back at home in England. Uh, after they've died down in uh, 1559, uh, he returns home, continues his research, he travels around the country, he interviews eyewitnesses uh, who had uh, seen some of these burnings, he examines Episcopal records, copies out martyrs' letters uh, and final statements, and ex- uh, publishes an expanded version of his martyrology uh, from the Lollards all the way up to his own generation. Uh, in English, in 1563, it's entitled The Acts and Monuments of These Latter and Perilous Days. Seven years later, uh, 1570, a second and much fuller edition is published. It runs to 2,335 pages, 3.15 million words. So this is a book which is four times as long as the Bible. Um, and uh, in fact, it is the longest single volume ever published in the English language. Uh, we, we have a Victorian reprint at my seminary um, in Oxford, uh, which ran to eight volumes by the Victorians. They had to break it up. Uh, but in Fox's day, it's one giant book. Uh, became known as Fox's Book of Martyrs, an absolutely essential text for understanding uh, the heartbeat of the English Reformation. And for generations, this is the volume which inspires uh, successes uh, other English-speaking Christians with its account of the, the suffering and the fortitude of its heroes. Queen Elizabeth sponsors its publication uh, right throughout the country and she insists that two books uh, must be securely uh, laid up in every cathedral in the land. One of them will be the Bible in English and the other book will be Fox's book uh, of martyrs so local communities can come and read about uh, the people uh, that they knew uh, who died in the burnings. Contains remarkable woodcuts, uh, some of which uh, I'll show you on the screen tonight, which uh, have a, a very strong emotive impact upon the readers. Uh, and uh, many famous lines, if you know your English Reformation history, uh, some classic lines that you'll find in Fox's book. Think, for example, of uh, Latimer and Ridley. Um, at the stake in Oxford, October of 1555, uh, and Latimer uh, famously said, uh, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. Do you remember that line? We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as will never be put out. Uh, Those are words which have uh, echoed right down uh, the the generations. For children in England, until uh, perhaps two generations ago, Feeding them stories of Fox's Book of Martyrs was a a standard thing to do. Uh, If you uh, attended your your children's Sunday school class regularly uh, and you had enough Sundays in a row, as the prize at the end of term, you'd be given an abridged version uh, of Fox's Book of Martyrs. So these are not things uh, the English church tried to uh, protect uh, from families. Uh, They they have a a massive impact. They're deeply embedded uh, in the English psyche. And I've... Uh, giving to you on your, your tables, um, just so you can see it up close, the front page of Fox's book. Uh, and uh, you'll, you'll see straight away uh, that, uh, yes, he's interested in history, uh, but he also wants to teach theology. 
uh, through this giant volume. It's a historical narrative with a very sharp polemical edge. Uh, just notice uh, on, the, on the front page what he's saying about the story uh, which is going to unfold. And it's really two ways to live. Uh, he's uh, showing two versions uh, of the church. On the, on the left-hand side, as we look at it, uh, are his heroes. Uh, and on the right-hand side are the villains of the piece, the, uh, uh, the ecclesiastical authorities. Uh, notice on the left-hand side... Uh, some of the details as we we were seeing last night down in the bottom quadrant uh, there's somebody preaching uh, the gospel he's got a big reformation beard uh, do you notice there again you have uh, the women uh, listening to the preacher with a bible open uh, on their lap uh, following the text um, and the, these these martyrs with these symbols from the book of revelation with the trumpets and the palm branches uh, praising the lord and on the right hand side again highly polemical, uh, not the sort of thing you could put on a book in an ecumenical age, um, but he's criticising the church authorities uh, for outward performance of religion uh, rather than heartfelt faith um, for um, some of the things that you'll see there, a strong emphasis upon upon pilgrimage um, and uh, the Eucharist is is a sharp point of debate. I simply give that to you as a way of saying, uh, Fox's book, don't read it and think you're going to get uh, secular, uh, even-handed, detached history. Uh, Fox's book is uh, very theological. He wants to teach his readers something about the English Reformation, something about the Christian faith uh, in the way in which he writes. Edward VI, uh, you'll recall, uh, died at the age of 15 uh, from tuberculosis. And when his sister Mary came to the throne, she rapidly set about dismantling the Reformation piece by piece. Uh, all these orders which were, were brought in uh, as soon as she was in power, the first thing she does is revoke the preaching licenses and the leading reformers are rounded up and sent to prison, many of them to the Tower of London. Uh, next, the doctrine changes. Transubstantiation is officially affirmed. Uh, Two months later, all the Edwardian religious uh, uh, legislation is repealed. So the Book of Common Prayer we were thinking about last night is banned. Uh, The Latin Mass is restored. Altars are rebuilt uh, instead of wooden tables for the Lord's Supper. Processions revived, images rehung, Eucharistic vestments are re-embroidered. None of those would have been found uh, in Cranmer's church. Clerical celibacy is restored. Uh, All the married clergy were deprived of their benefices. About 10% of the clergy had uh, got married in Edward's reign and they were now given a straight choice, wife or job. You can't have them both. Uh, Many of them actually stayed with their jobs um, and uh, asked their wives to depart. But the Queen is restoring uh, this this ancient rule. Then all the foreign Protestants uh, in England, those who'd been such a help to Archbishop Cranmer, are expelled from the country. The Queen forms a marriage alliance with Philip II of Spain between Tudor England and Habsburg dynasty, the leading uh, conservative Catholic family on the continent. And in November of 1554, 20 years after the break with Rome, the Church of England is formally reconciled uh, back with uh, the old church. Cardinal Pole comes from Italy and he declares that the 30th of November, henceforth in English history, every year is to be celebrated as the Feast of Reconciliation. 
where these uh, church divisions uh, are ended. Uh, reconciliation back with the old church. And the final plank in Mary's strategy is the revival in January 1555 of the old medieval heresy laws, the heretico comberendo, uh, on the burning of heretics, originally aimed at the Lollards. And with these new powers, the church authorities began a very decisive purge of the Reformation leadership. Bishop Hooper uh, writes in one of his letters to his friend Bullinger in Zurich, they are daily threatening us with death which we are quite indifferent about. In Christ Jesus, we boldly despise the sword and the flames. We know in whom we have believed, and we are sure that we shall lay down our lives in a good cause. Um, and in fact, Hooper did. He was uh, uh, the second or third um, to die. What I've tried to do uh, tonight is to draw out for you some of the theological themes in Fox's book. Um, some of the things he wants to say about uh, Christian priorities and Christian character uh, in the way in which he writes. Again and again, those are the things uh, in all these 3.15 million words uh, that he's seeking uh, to emphasise. Without embarrassment, he uses his history to try and teach the church uh, something about the gospel. And I've simply tried to isolate for you uh, six particular themes, six passions, uh, as I've called them, of uh, these martyrs. None of them will surprise you. Um, they're, they're, uh, uh, two of them have, the first two have strong echoes, if you were here last night, of the things that Cranmer had to say. And that's, that's quite deliberate, uh, because Cranmer and Fox are on the same page uh, in these things. Let me give you these six um, and uh, see how we get on. Here's the first thing. Again, very strong echoes of last night's. When you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, one of the things he wants to emphasise uh, in his narrative is the passion for the Word of God amongst the people that he's narrating. Just down the road from our seminary in Oxford is our famous Martyrs Memorial. I'm sure if you've been to the city, uh, you've stood uh, on its steps uh, in your visit to Oxford, this, uh, this great monument here, um, just near the Randolph Hotel, put up in the 1840s um, at the height of the Tractarian Revival. Uh, within Anglicanism. And remember the Tractarian Revival uh, in the 1830s and 40s, sometimes called the Oxford Movement, a uh, group of young clergy um, who began to teach uh, that in their view the Reformation was a mistake um, and uh, uh, best forgotten uh, and looked instead for their theology uh, not to the reformers but back to the medieval church for their inspiration in doctrine and ecclesiology and architecture uh, and church uh, furnishing. So those are, those are the sorts of things they were trying to bring uh, back into the church. So the Anglican traditionalists, uh, the old school Anglicans, uh, said uh, we're going to build a martyr's memorial uh, in our university city, uh, in the, the place where Tractarianism was born, as a reminder publicly that Tractarianism uh, doesn't belong in Anglicanism, that it's a, it's a new thing. Um, it's not the traditional way of doing things, the, the, the cuckoo in the nest, uh, if you like. Uh, they're trying to emphasise, by building this monument and other monuments all the way around England uh, in the 19th century, that the English church is a Reformation church, uh, that Fox's heroes need to be remembered uh, in the contemporary uh, Victorian world. Uh, so don't think of it, if you come to Oxford, simply as a nice tourist landmark um, to take photos on. Um, it's, it's intended as a visible declaration uh, that 
uh, Anglicans. In the centre of Oxford, think of Oxford as traditional Anglican country, um, stands with the reformers. That's its, its purpose. And one of the great statues uh, in the monument is of Archbishop Cranmer. And he's holding, of course, a Bible, a giant Bible in his arms uh, with words carved in the cover, the Bible in English, May of 1541. As we were remembering last night, uh, the Archbishop's willingness to stake his life on the truths of Scripture. Of everything uh, taught in the church, in our congregations, uh, Cranmer is saying, always ask the question, but is this what the Scriptures teach? Uh, what does God say in, uh, in the Bible? It wasn't just Cranmer who had this great passion for the Bible. We see the same desire amongst very many of the martyrs that Fox narrates for us. And uh, 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 he gives us uh, plenty of examples like Archdeacon Philpot, uh, John Philpot, the Archdeacon of Winchester. Shortly, shortly after uh, Queen Mary came to the throne, he was at convocation, which would be the equivalent of... Um, uh, general convention is that something you have in the Episcopal world it's, it's that sort of uh, event it's the, the, the church's parliament and uh, rather a scary time for uh, the reformers at the start of Mary's reign uh, many even of uh, the Reformation clergy were afraid to nail their colours to the mast but Philpot stands up uh, in that hostile environment and he speaks out for a, a biblical understanding of the sacraments. It's a difficult thing to do. The majority were against him and according to Fox, they shout him down uh, with the words, uh, you have the word, we have the sword. It's the way Fox uh, records it. Uh, he paid with his life in the fires of Smithfields, the meat market uh, in the centre of London. This is where uh, butchers would burn their carcasses. Uh, it's also therefore where the authorities uh, burnt the reformers. Or think at the other end of the social and educational scale of Rawlins White. He's an old man. He's uh, an illiterate fisherman in Cardiff uh, in South Wales. Uh, and he sent his son to school to learn to read so that every evening after supper his son read uh, to old Rawlins White from the English Bible. Uh, and uh, so much so that uh, uh, White learnt to recite long passages off by heart. He couldn't actually read the scriptures himself. He's illiterate, uh, but he'd, he'd heard them enough. Uh, he'd feasted upon them, and he begins to preach in the local area, uh, exhorting others to turn to the Christ of the Bible. The Bishop of Landaff uh, didn't like it, uh, condemned him to death, Fox tells us. And he gives us a very full account of William Hunter, the first martyr in Essex. Hunter was only 19 years old uh, when he gave his life for his Christian faith. Uh, and Fox is emphasising, uh, re read the account in the book, he's emphasising that he died primarily because of his passion for the words of God. Every time we had a, a holiday or a day off a few years ago as a family, uh, when our children were younger, uh, we, would, uh, we would try and drive them out to a place around England where one of these martyrdoms had happened um, and uh, recount the story together and try and identify uh, buildings and things which had still existed from that time. So uh, a few of these are, are snaps from our, uh, our family holidays. Uh, this is what remains uh, in Brentwood uh, in Essex um, of uh, the Wayside Chapel uh, in which William Hunter in 1554, uh, walking down the high street, uh, entered uh, this chapel. It was built in the Middle Ages uh, for pilgrims travelling 
through Essex to Canterbury to pray at the shrine of Thomas of Becket's Bones um, at Canterbury Cathedral. And when Hunter enters this little wayside chapel, he finds, remarkably, uh, one of the old English Bibles from Henry VIII's reign, uh, which is still there, and begins to read out aloud to himself. Uh, a, a local official, Father Atwell, walks in, hears the Bible being read, and immediately interrupts. Why are you meddling with the Bible? Do you know what you're reading? Can you expound the scriptures? Hunter says, I'm not expounding the scriptures. I'm only reading them for my own benefits. And the church official retorts, it's not been a happy world since the Bible was circulated in English. Now, Hunter pleads, for God's sake, don't say that, Father Atwell, for it's God's book from which everyone who has grace may learn what pleases God and also what displeases him. I understand your mind well enough. This is the, uh, the conversation in Fox. Uh, you must turn over a new leaf or else you and a great many more will burn for it, I promise you. Give me grace, comes Hunter's reply. Uh, God give me grace that I may believe his word and confess his name, whatever the consequences. He's arrested. He's taken down to the centre of London. Uh, and uh, thrown in the stocks and interrogated by the bishop, Bishop Bonner, at St. Paul's Cathedral. This is, uh, you probably remember St. Paul's with its great dome. Um, of course, that's uh, post-Reformation, uh, Reformation times. It had a, a giant steeple. Uh, and uh, Bonner was nicknamed uh, Bloody Bonner. Bishop of London uh, burnt more reformers than any other bishop uh, in England. And he had his own private prison uh, you probably can't see at the back. This is uh, the cathedral. And here in the corner is the bishop's prison uh, in which he was able to put uh, people who were arrested for uh, theological teaching. To begin with, uh, Hunter's only 19. He tries to uh, persuade him uh, gently uh, with offers of finance, uh, offers perhaps of employment, uh, if he'd change his views. But the teenager responds, I thank you for your great offers, my lord, but if you cannot persuade me from the scriptures, I cannot turn from God for love of the world. I count all worldly things as loss and dung compared to the love of Christ. When the burnings began, they took him uh, back to Brentwood. Uh, this was the, the government strategy. You might be on trial in London or in a big city, um, but often you would be taken back to your local community um, and uh, executed in front of your family and friends. He was taken to a great tree, uh, known from that day as the, the Martyr's Elm. This is its modern replacement uh, in the middle of Brentwood. Uh, according to Fox, he walks confidently through the crowd, carrying his precious copy of the Psalms in English, uh, kneels at the stake and recites Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. And as the flames rose around him, he lifted his hands to heaven and cried, Lord, 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 receive my spirit before being smothered by the smoke. If you visit Brentwood today, it's not on the tourist trail, uh, as Oxford is, uh, but it does have its martyr's memorial. Again, put up by the Victorians as a way of trying to say um, when uh, theology was back in the melting pot in Victorian England, what direction will the Church of England take? What do we think of this Tractarian revival, these new kids on the block? Uh, it's trying to say, well, rem remember uh, the Reformation heritage. It's rather uninspiring. I don't think they had as much money uh, as the, the people building the Oxford version. Just an obelisk uh, in a doctor's car park. Uh, and uh, <laughs> most people walk by it without noticing. But on this memorial are engraved the words, Christian reader, 
learn from his example to value the privilege of an open Bible and be careful to maintain it. This is a theme Fox emphasises right throughout his book. Uh, these martyrs had a passion for the words of God as their, their rock and their guide and the foundation uh, of the, the, uh, the English church. Here's the second thing. And again, uh, echoes of last night. That's no surprise. Uh, Fox is trying to say uh, that these martyrs had a passion for God's saving grace. Remember that motto? Uh, we were uh, recalling sola gratia, sola fide, solo Christo, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the one question, perhaps on above all, on which the reformers staked their lives. So when you read their trial accounts in Fox's book, uh, when they're under interrogation, they're always being asked questions about grace and faith and salvation. Uh, that's what the authorities are challenging them on. Not so much uh, the English Bible, uh, but their understanding of the gospel in that sense. That's why uh, they're interrogated so often about the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion, uh, which is this really important visual uh, gospel picture. Here is the Divinity School, uh, again in Oxford, just down the road from us, uh, where Cranmer, Latimer and Ridley spent day after day in front of their captors uh, and a raucous crowd uh, arguing about the Lord's Supper uh, and uh, its meaning. Because uh, as they understood it, uh, the medieval mass or the Eucharist uh, gives one particular answer to how I can be saved by uh, offering things up to God, perhaps the language of, of an altar. Uh, for example, some sort of sacrifice we bring to God. Cranmer, we were learning last night, turns it on his head and says, actually, at the Lord's Supper, we come with empty hands and we receive from God by grace. Uh, nothing we bring, uh, just uh, receiving salvation through the merits uh, of Jesus Christ. And in this divinity school, he's having to argue that out uh, in uh, really a kangaroo court. Uh, they're pushing him very hard uh, on that question. I wonder what you would give to family and friends uh, as the most precious parting gift if you knew uh, it was your final day on earth. One of the martyrs, Roland Taylor, uh, meets his wife for the last time uh, and uh, before he's, he's burnt to death, they've both got tears uh, flowing down their cheeks and he gives his wife one gift. What is it? Uh, it is Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer, uh, which Taylor had been using every day in prison. Uh, because he says this book is constantly pointing us uh, to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And according to, to Fox, these martyrs uh, are willing to stake their lives uh, on that good news. Many of them are arrested at church meetings. Uh, they had to meet in secret uh, because uh, using the Book of Common Prayer uh, or talking about the grace of God in this way was uh, illegal. This poor man in the picture... Uh, Cuthbert Simpson was a deacon of a secret congregation uh, in London. He was entrusted with the dangerous task uh, of keeping the membership list of who was part of that church. And a government spy uh, infiltrates the congregation, reports to the authorities, uh, and uh, the officials swoop in uh, on one of their meetings. Simpson is taken to the Tower of London. At the bishop's request, he's stretched on the rack. Uh, to divulge the names. Who, who are these members of the secret church uh, who insist on, on teaching these things uh, about sola gratia and sola fide? Fox tells us that he, uh, he refused to buckle uh, under the torture uh, and uh, they burnt him um, at Smithfields. 
3.15 million words in Fox's book um, and uh, full of these woodcuts. And really the woodcuts are often uh, the things that people remember. Um, and uh, yeah, I imagine illiterate Christians going to their cathedral, um, seeing a giant book, um, but they can study the pictures and they, have a, they deliberately have a, an effective emotional impact uh, upon the reader. They're, they're designed in that way. Passion for God's saving grace. And uh, as Fox describes it, uh, when uh, you bring the grace of Christ back to the church's attention, you won't be thanked for it. Uh, they weren't praised, uh, they were vilified. And he points uh, often to their courage to challenge the uh, ecclesiastical authorities, like Richard Woodman, uh, a humble church warden in the tiny little village of Warbleton uh, in Sussex. Uh, and uh, one Sunday morning, uh, he stands up publicly in the congregation and challenges his, his vicar uh, for leading the flock uh, away from the grace of God. And uh, Woodman burnt uh, with nine others uh, in the centre of Lewis. So you, you see how Fox, um, he's writing history, but he's, he's doing more than writing history. He's deliberately, uh, in the 1560s and 70s, trying to give exemplars, and he's asking his readers, uh, do you have a similar passion uh, for the saving grace of God and the courage of your convictions? Time is rattling on, isn't it, at a great pace. I'm going to have to... I'm going to have to speed up. Here's, here's passion number three uh, that you get right throughout Fox, a passion uh, for prayer. When the reformers have their backs against the wall, when they're battling uh, for the sake of the gospel, they do more than merely strategize uh, and uh, somehow campaign together or, or meet uh, in conference. They do more than preach bold sermons or write rousing pamphlets. Above all, in Fox's book, they are to be found praying. Uh, they demonstrate their reliance on God by the amount of time spent on their knees. So one of the most stirring scenes uh, is when four of the leading reformers, by accident, end up in the same prison cell together uh, in the Tower of London. Latimer, Ridley, Cranmer and John Bradford. They'd all been in separate cells, um, but Thomas Wyatt's rebellion, do you remember that in 1554, uh, had tried to topple the Queen. So suddenly the prison is full. Uh, of all these rebels, and they stick the, the four theologians uh, in one cell together. Great joy to them, uh, where they're able to encourage one another, study together, but most importantly, to pray. And as they describe it, uh, they're only a tiny little remnant, uh, four men, but they consecrate themselves uh, to prayer. They know that God is able, uh, so instead of despairing, they pray. And right throughout Fox's narrative, uh, uh, all the other martyrs, we see uh, similarly breathe through the spirit of prayer. Now, uh, when I was here with my, my kids, uh, I had to vault the church wall to take this photograph for you um, at, uh, at risk to my, my bones. Uh, this is Dean Parish Church uh, outside Bolton uh, in the north of England, uh, where George Marsh... Uh, the ploughman turned preacher had his ministry. He used to be a, a farmer, but he gets converted and he dedicates the rest of his life uh, to preaching ministry. And when the persecution begins, his family tell him to flee, uh, but his first response isn't to run, it's to pray, says Fox. He spends the whole night out on Dean Moor in the open air in earnest prayer and heart-searching, seeking the will of God, and comes to the conclusion, to quote, uh, I should bear such a cross as it should please God to lay upon my shoulders. And at every point in the narrative, 
He's constantly to be found praying. So when he stands before magistrates on various occasions, he prays. When he's locked in solitary confinement in a small cold room, he's forced to sleep on the floor, uh, he prays. When he writes to his friends, uh, and Fox has some of his original letters he copies uh, into the Acts and Monuments, uh, he encourages his friends to pray. Uh, to quote, pray for me, pray earnestly, pray for the church, pray that all that are in chains, that God would assist us with his Holy Spirit, that we may uh, with boldness confess his holy name. He's taken to Lancaster Castle, uh, still actually one of Her Majesty's prisons uh, today. Um, And uh, there's an amusing scene uh, where every day, twice a day, George Marsh and his cellmates uh, would hold a little prayer meeting uh, in their cell uh, in this castle. But instead of praying quietly together, uh, they pray at the top of their voices as they walk up and down uh, the cell uh, and uh, uh, recite chapters from the Bible, praying and praising. And every night, uh, uh, residents in Lancaster would come to the castle walls at the base and listen in to this Reformation prayer meeting uh, which was happening up above them, uh, much to the annoyance of the authorities. And it's the same when they finally took him to Chester, uh, to the cathedral where he was condemned uh, to be burnt. And after the sentence of excommunication, uh, capital punishment is read out, the bishop says to him, uh, now I will no more pray for you than I will for a dog. Uh, But Marsh responds, uh, according to the eyewitnesses, Nevertheless, my Lord, I will still pray for you. They take him to Gallows Hill. Uh, You can visit the spot in Chester uh, when you're next in that part of the country. Uh, Gallows Hill. Uh, The name says it all. He kneels down to pray. He's chained to the stake. Uh, Wooden uh, reeds piled around him. Act of a particular particular cruelty, a a barrel of tar and pitch uh, was placed above his head. So he's not just burnt to death, he's also scalded to death at the same time. But his last recorded words are ones of prayer, speaking to the Lord that he's about to meet face to face. Uh, He holds his arms aloft and cries out one last time, Father of heaven, have mercy on me. George Marsh and his fellow martyrs have this passion for prayer. And Fox wants to say in his book uh, to uh, English-speaking Christians, well, these are exemplars. Uh, Pray without ceasing. Pray in private, pray in the family, pray uh, in the congregation, uh, pray for the church. Uh, We'll be mightily used by God uh, if we're down on our knees. Passion for prayer, passion for godliness uh, comes over very strongly uh, in Fox's narrative. I'm sure you're familiar with the the many uh, lurid accounts which uh, circulated in the 16th century um, about uh, immorality which was rife. Uh, in the church, greed and corruption um, and uh, sexual, uh, sexual immorality, even amongst the clergy. Um, and uh, both the Catholic and the Protestant commentators agree on this, that this is a problem that, uh, that needs to be sorted out. Uh, clerical celibacy was enforced, uh, but uh, many of the clergy were known to keep mistresses uh, with the connivance of their bishop as long as they would pay fines for the, the children that were born. Um, and uh, many, uh, many clergy children Uh, in local communities, something of a a scandal uh, in the 16th century. Uh, And the reformers, uh, like Bishop Ridley and Bishop Hooper, uh, lead the way in attempts to try to establish godliness amongst uh, the clergy, a godly ministry. Uh, They point to the very high standards uh, demanded by the scriptures. 
um, and say these are the sorts of people that we want to be recruiting uh, to public office. And they deliberately raise the bar to ordination, uh, ministry, competence and godly character. But it's not just a demand on others. Uh, Godliness uh, begins at home. They don't just preach to the church. uh, They also preach to themselves. And Fox tries to say in the way in which he he narrates these stories that uh, godliness is particularly evident uh, when these martyrs are under pressure, under extreme persecution. He makes a a point of emphasising the the fruit of the Spirit uh, being displayed in remarkable ways. So uh, if you haven't read any of Fox's book yet, don't try the whole thing. Um, but there, there are lots of little abridgments that you can get. Uh, the, the Oxford World Classic Series, Oxford University Press, about 300 pages. That'll give you many of the, the, the key narratives uh, in the book. Uh, read accounts of their trials, uh, and uh, the fruit of the Spirit is a dominant theme. Joy in the midst of suffering, even when you lose your job and are separated from your children and thrown out of your home. Uh, Peace and patience uh, when they're tortured in gruesome ways. Kindness, even towards their persecutors. Uh, Self-control, when uh, you expect them to curse, uh, instead they bless. Colchester, again in Essex, uh, had a a large number uh, of these martyrs. Saw uh, more Christians executed there in the 1550s uh, than any other place in England apart from Smithfield and Canterbury. Uh, Colchester was next and many were imprisoned here uh, in Colchester Castle like Rose Allen young woman she's only 20 years old Uh, she and her parents were part of a secret underground congregation meeting for prayer uh, and Bible reading and one night their house is surrounded by armed men and they're dragged from their beds and the ringleader Edmund Tyrrell particularly nasty piece of work Um, He insults Rose as a whore and a gossip and a heretic. Uh, And then we read, he grabs her by the wrist um, and holds a a burning candle under her hand um, until uh, the flesh is is burnt away near to the bone. Um, And and Fox describes, he won't spare you the the gory details, I'm afraid, in the book. He does does describe these things. But he also wants to emphasise that Rose's godliness shone through how she remained composed, a bridle on her tongue, uh, until Tyrrell is so annoyed that he just thrusts her away with profane abuse. And on the same day that Rose was executed, they also burnt another young woman, uh, Elizabeth Folkes, uh, also aged 20. Uh, She was being chained to the stake. Uh, One of the guards uh, missed his aim with a hammer uh, and struck her on the shoulder instead. And again, uh, Fox says her... Uh, Her godliness shone through at that moment. Uh, She raised her eyes to heaven and prayed with a smile before admonishing the crowd. And as the flames rose around them, uh, she and her companions clapped their hands for joy uh, on their way to heaven. Fox is deliberately challenging in this book. He's he's challenging readers uh, in the 1560s and 70s and later generations um, that Reformation doctrine must go hand in hand uh, with godly character, even in the, midst, uh, of persecu- uh, in the midst of persecution. It's no good simply to be um, orthodox in your thinking. Uh, you've also got to be uh, godly in the way uh, that you live. And he, he lays down that challenge uh, to the Elizabethan church. Two more things. Passion for people. Do we have time for this? Probably not. Let me... 
We do? We do? Okay. Okay. Uh, a, a, a passion for people. I've just got two more. We've had four. Uh, a passion uh, for people. Uh, again, it's easy to forget in the midst of uh, theological and political controversy what is uh, ultimately at stake uh, in that period. Not some rarefied truth, not some ideological principle. It's not about ecclesiology. Uh, it's not about um, tastes in the way church should happen. It's not about church politics. Uh, the reformers are concerned primarily for the eternal destinies of men and women, uh, of people in their families and their communities uh, and their local congregations. And Fox, in his narrative, uh, wants the English church to recapture, again, not just a passion for doctrinal truth, uh, but a passion for people. Just give you one example, uh, uh, which is, is told uh, at great length in Acts and Monuments of Rodan Taylor, uh, he's the pastor of Hadley, a prosperous market town uh, in Suffolk. He's not a great theologian. Uh, he's not a scholar. Uh, he doesn't write any academic treatises uh, to fill our libraries. He's not involved in all those uh, debates uh, in convocation or in parliament. His work is at the coalface, getting his hands dirty amongst the people of his parish. He's an energetic preacher, compassionate pastor. He was known to be a physically big man, massive physique, uh, giant white beard, uh, known for his big hearts as well, especially his care for the poor. And uh, this is his house in Hadley. Again, if you visit Suffolk, um, I don't know what most of your rectories look like in the States. That was, uh, that was his home. Um, but uh, he's prepared, if necessary, to become involved in controversy uh, for the sake of the people. He believes that being a good pastor uh, means a willingness not just to feed the flock of God, but also defend the flock of God uh, when it's under attack. And when it came to the crunch, he was willing to lay down his life for his sheep. When the persecution begins, again, his friends urge him to flee. That's a, a, a refrain we've noticed. Uh, but Taylor answers, remember the good shepherd Christ, who not only fed his flock, but also died for his flock. Him I must follow and with God's grace will do. He's uh, sent to London to prison for a year before being condemned to death and then transported back to his parish uh, to be burnt at Hadley as a warning to his parishioners. They promised to make him a bishop. Um, this, again, this is quite frequent um, promotion uh, if he would change his, his views, uh, but he refused. And what took the authorities by surprise and a particular thing Fox wants to emphasise uh, in that part of his his portrait, is the love of the pastor for the people and a love of the people uh, for the pastor. There's this outpouring of popular grief on the streets of the town. The roads of Hadley are crowded on both sides with men and women, many weeping and praying out loud uh, for their pastor. Oh, good Lord, there goes our good shepherd who so faithfully taught us, so fatherly cared for us, so godly governed us. Oh, merciful God, what shall we poor scattered lambs do? What shall come out of his most wicked world? Good Lord, strengthen and comfort him. One of the, the moving scenes is when he passes at the Hadley Arms Houses. Uh, this, again, is the, the modern replacement. These are the 1930s arms houses, uh, but it's where the, the arms houses stood uh, in the 1550s uh, and where Taylor had ministered uh, for many years to the poor and elderly inhabitants. And these uh, old men and women shuffle to their doorways to get one last glimpse of their pastor uh, as he goes to his death. At Oldham Common, 
there's another martyr's memorial. Just a fields uh, in the middle of Suffolk outside Hadley. He's forbidden to address the crowd, uh, but as a parting gift he gives them his clothing, beginning with his boots uh, and his coat, uh, until he's just standing there in his shirt. Good people, he said, I've taught you nothing but God's holy words, and those lessons that I've taken out of God's blessed book, the Holy Bible, and I've come here today to seal it with my blood. He kneels down to pray, uh, actually kisses the stake as he's being attached to it with chains. Uh, Praise Psalm uh, 51, um, praying for himself, uh, but also praying for his congregation uh, in his final moments. Roland Taylor takes pastoring to another level. Uh, And in the Elizabethan church, because of Fox's narrative, he's he's raised up uh, as an exemplar, as a model uh, of the, the Reformation minister for later generations because of his passion for people. Here really is the last thing. A passion for eternity. Uh, Fox makes very clear. Do come and visit us in Oxford one day. Uh, The the Martyrs Memorial is uh, very striking. On it you will find uh, a number of symbols, uh, including these. Crown of thorns uh, next to a crown of glory. Uh, It's a deliberate reminder by the Victorian Uh, designers, that the martyrs are able to withstand persecution because they have an eternal perspective. So they know for a little while they're going to have to wear uh, the crown of thorns. They're going to be persecuted uh, as as Christ was. But in heaven, uh, they're going to be given a different sort of crown, the crown uh, of glory, an eternal reward that far outweighs uh, light and momentary troubles. What does St. Paul say? Uh, Eyes fixed not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. And the reformers know uh, there is something more important than comfort and security. So they promised all these promotions, uh, a lovely rectory, uh, a bishopric, a teaching post at the right university. Uh, If they'll change their opinions, uh, they, they turn their back. Uh, on those offers because they're looking forward to a better reward, an eternal reward. Thomas Iveson, uh, martyr from Sussex, spoke for many of them when he said, I won't give up my opinions for all the goods in London. Uh, They're willing to put uh, their jobs on the line for the sake of the gospel, even to sacrifice the comfort of their families, uh, their husbands and wives and children. Perhaps that's the thing uh, I think when, uh, when I've been reading Fox, that most tugs on the heartstrings Uh, When they put their heads above the parapet, uh, it's not just they who suffer, but their families do too. It's a very high cost to pay. But they're buoyed up in the midst of these struggles by their passion for eternity. Because they know there's something more important even than the happiness of their wives and husbands and children. And uh, these moving scenes that that Fox writes with with great, uh, great, great affection. Um, the, the final parting, the last meal with the spouse, the last embrace with the children, often with tears uh, pouring down their cheeks. John Rogers was the very first martyr, 4th of February, 1555, uh, the one who they said broke the ice. He's a clergyman in London. Uh, he's burnt at Smithfield within sight of his own church, but he's forced to walk to the stake uh, past his wife and his brood of children. Uh, one of whom was a a babe in arms uh, that he'd uh, not even met, uh, born while he was in prison. But the French ambassador 
is on record, who witnessed the event, as saying, Rogers walked courageously to his death as if he was walking to a wedding. Uh, remarkable. Or, or Derek Carver, the first martyr in Sussex. He's burnt in Lewis outside the town hall in a barrel. His Bible's thrown in after him. And, and as the fire engulfs him, he prays out loud, O Lord God, you know that I've forsaken all to come to you. Wife, children, home, everything I have. Lord, have mercy on me, for I commend my spirit to you and my soul rejoices in you. Those are his final recorded words. Uh, he left behind five orphaned children. Uh, able to do it because he has... Uh, this eternal perspective. It's the same uh, for Bishop Hooper in Gloucester, uh, one of the, the five bishops to die. Burnt outside his own cathedral. Uh, again, visit Gloucester. There's a, there's a monument on the spot. Uh, and the night before he died, an old friend came to visit him, Sir Anthony Kingston. Uh, and as soon as Kingston saw Hooper, he burst into tears uh, and pleaded with him to change his mind. Remember, he said, that death is bitter and life is sweet. Save yourself. And the bishop responds, that's true, but I know that the life to come is more sweet and the death to come is more bitter. It's the, the eternal perspective. Hooper died in a particularly gruesome way, 45 minutes in the fire. Um, but he's not willing to let go of that crown of glory, uh, eternal life with Jesus Christ. Uh, and I could multiply examples all evening. I'm encouraging you to go away and read, uh, read some of the text uh, for yourself. Uh, Lawrence Saunders, martyred at Coventry, who embraces the stake with the words, welcome the cross of Christ, welcome eternal life. Or Nicholas Ridley, who said to his jailer the night before he died, though my breakfast will be sharp and painful, yet my supper will be pleasant and sweet. Uh, or John Bradford, who says to a teenage lad being burnt next to him, be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord tonight. Uh, or, or Roland Taylor, as he's approaching Hadley uh, on his way to execution. Uh, as, as Hadley comes into view, he jumps off his horse uh, and begins to dance around. And the sheriff uh, thinks he's gone mad, uh, asks if he's feeling okay. God be praised, never better, says Taylor. For now I am almost home. Two more stars to go and I'm at my father's house. Well, John Fox's... Uh, acts and monuments of these latter and perilous days. The Book of Martyrs, one of the most influential texts for shaping uh, the direction of the English Reformation. For generations of English-speaking Christians, uh, they're nurtured on these narratives. These are the heroes uh, from the, the church's point of view who give their lives for the future of the nation, willing to, uh, to pay the ultimate sacrifice. Fox loves his history. Uh, but he also loves his Christian theology uh, and uh, his uh, Christian discipleship, which is why he's hammering home these, these six things. Passion for the word of God, uh, for the saving grace of God, for prayer, for godliness, for people, for eternity, for seeing God face to face, uh, worshipping before the throne of the Lord forever. Uh, John Fox is ultimately convinced that the Lord will vindicate his saints uh, those who've remained faithful and will say, well done, uh, good and faithful servants. Welcome to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Thank you very much.
the stories in there of maybe the executioners or any of the jailers who come to Christ and maybe are executed? There are certainly accounts of uh, these deaths having a profound impact on some in the crowd. Um, so w- one of the very first slides I showed you was the woodcut from Oxford uh, where uh, Latimer and Ridley are being burnt um, side by side or back to back um, and uh, they have to get the soldiers with drawn swords in a loop around them because they fear that there might be great sympathy in the crowd um, who, are, um, who are mourning that this is happening. Julius Palmer uh, would be an example. He watched that event um, and is converted to Reformation views as a result. Um, and he's burnt down in Newbury um, just a little while after that, which is just south of Oxford. Um, so that is happening. Um, really, one of the things which um, undermines uh, the Marian regime and their strategy is that uh, there's, a, there's a massive backlash in local communities um, about what the authorities are doing. Um, and I think that's t- isn't that typical right throughout church history? Um, so where you see the, the government or the authorities um, press down on the church, actually the church grows more than it would if they'd done nothing at all and left them to it. Please. Did Mary attend any of these or was she totally behind the scenes and just had it done? She's, no, she's not in evidence personally. Um, so this, this was a, a time of... Um, strange collaboration between the the church authorities and the secular authorities. Um, So the church didn't want to get its hands dirty. Um, The the bishop would condemn you, uh, but then would hand you over to the secular power, um, and it would be the sheriff who would actually um, execute you. Was that taken care of, or was she... Behind the scenes, is there documentation of her she, involvement? Um, she's, she's supportive of it, um, and um, there, there's no signs that she was unhappy with this. This is, this is, uh, this is royal strategy. Um, sometimes a royal pardon is offered, um, so they bring one to Hooper, for example, um, and they lay it down there in front of him um, as he's being tied to the stake and say, there is the pardon, it's yours if you want it. Um, uh, The the martyrs are very keen to emphasise their loyalty to the crown. Um, So they always speak highly of the Queen. Um, And they they want to say, this isn't isn't treachery. Um, This isn't because I'm against the English nation or against the royal family. Um, Well, (laughs) uh, possibly. Um, Please. Um, well, the, those who escaped uh, would often see the sovereignty and the care of God explicitly in it. Um, so there are those narratives, like for Fox himself, um, who just by happen chance is one step ahead um, of the officers as they come to arrest him. Um, no, no, if. No, I mean, uh, Fox, Fox does speak of miracles, um, but it's more miracles uh, in, in the moment of death rather than 
um, saving from death. So uh, the, the, uh, one example would be um, a martyr in Dartford, uh, which is uh, uh, in Kent, um, and he says to his friends, um, according to the narrative, um, I've, I've been praying that God will give a sign to you um, that, that, that this death is triumphant, that you don't need to fear if you're going to follow in, in these footsteps. And, and as, he, he pray, as he's burnt, he prays with his arms aloft. And when he's died, his arms remain aloft um, up to heaven. Now, uh, contemporary historians looking at that have suggested probably this is some sort of early rigor mortis which has set in. So medically possible in that sense. Um, but for Fox, and certainly for that group watching, they interpreted it as a miraculous sign um, of... Of, of God's care. Some story that heart actual heart. That's right. Yes. Um, and uh, um, uh, so, I mean, it's again, it's it's rather gruesome, isn't it? Um, but there is a clear up job to do at the end of an execution, um, and they did find Cranmer's heart amongst the ashes. Um, again, medically. Um, the, it's, there's a suggestion that perhaps he had some sort of heart disease going, perhaps it was kind of too encased in fat and didn't burn. Um, it's used by um, his opponents um, as, um, as a polemical sign um, that the Archbishop of Canterbury had a hard heart. Um, he didn't have a heart of flesh, he had a heart of stone. Um, and, and that's why it didn't, didn't burn. Yeah. But that wasn't seen by his, wasn't seen by his friends as a as a miracle. Any other thoughts? Do you have any comment on, I, I noticed uh, right here on the left-hand side they have the tetragrammaton. And I would have expected, what, you know, comparing the famous Luther painting where Luther is pointing to the cross. It's interesting that hmm. that's not what's pictured here, but more the Old Testament name for God. Hmm. Um... I don't know if you've read anything on that or anything. No, I, I don't know why uh, why they've done it that way. Um, uh, there, there is the picture of Christ in the in the picture up at the top of the sort of judgment scene. Right. So it's not that they're against depicting Christ in in that sense. Um, I think what's implied by the picture down at the bottom is that this is the worship of the true God. Right. Um, so it's not worship through outward ceremonial um, or it's not some sort of pilgrimage to an icon um, but it's you know this is this is God's name um, again having Hebrew letters on there is is very rare for a text from the 1560s because practically nobody read Hebrew at that period but it's trying to talk about the, the purity of worship on the left hand side Bible preaching and the true God who's being being praised any other thoughts? Or am I off the hook? Good, I'll stop. Thank you. <laughs>